Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Temp here. Thanks for tuning in. That's a new record of speed. Listen, before we get started, if you like the show, if you've been listening with any regularity, email me, chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com, and I want to connect. What I'd love to do is get on a Zoom call with you for 20, 30 minutes and just talk to you about the show, what you like, what you don't like, um, get to know you. That might sound weird for some of you, but I did it this morning with the listener, Ben, shout out to Ben. And it was incredible. We talked for 30 minutes. Great guy. I think we're going to connect again. And he helped me see some things with the show that we're going to implement. I want to do that. If you don't want to talk, that's fine. But if you would answer a few questions, like a miniature survey, that would be really helpful as well. Chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right. You are going to love this episode. This week on the show, we are interviewing Dr. Nathan Price. He is the co-author of the new book, The Age of Scientific Wellness, Why the Future of Medicine is Personalized, Predictive, Data-Rich, and In Your Hands. Nathan is currently the Chief Science Officer of Thorne Health Tech and Professor at the Institute for Systems Biology. He received the Grace A. Goldsmith Award for his work on scientific wellness and has co-authored over 200 peer-reviewed scientific publications. He's a really smart guy. 
I actually really respect Thorne, the company he works for. And in this conversation, what we're talking about is how we are now on the cusp of finally leveraging all the data we can gather. So what's your genome, your blood, your gut? How can we take all that and actually use AI and computers to help you live a longer life? That's it, short and simple. Make sure you stick around to the end, around 49 minutes into the interview, he discusses perhaps one of the most mind-blowing things I've ever heard. You're going to want to hear it. Trust me. Email me, chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Let's connect. I seriously want to talk to you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get into it with Nathan Price as we talk about his brand new book, The Age of Scientific Wellness, Why the Future of Medicine is Personalized, Predictive, Data-Rich, and In Your Hands. Enjoy. We're going to spend a lot of this episode talking about the future of medicine, where we're headed, what to be excited about. But I want to start with today. In your mind, what are the top few things happening today that are positively impacting our health and wellness that we might not be aware of and we can take action on? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And so I think there's so much that is available now for someone if they really want to take a deep dive into their own health. And I'm going to separate, you know, the book is the age of scientific wellness. And I want to talk about wellness on a couple different axes, because there's all the general table stakes stuff that we know of diet and exercise, you know, your lifestyle movement, those things matter immensely. Uh, When we talk about scientific wellness, those things are there, but we're also talking about some of the newer stuff that you can do. That's very quantitative and diving into your body in a little more precision in different ways that you can add on to those table stakes uh, kind of things. So a number of areas that I think are incredibly powerful right now is that you can tie together different types of information coming from your genome, coming from your uh, different blood measurements, and also coming from uh, the microbiome. And those pieces together can give you a lot. And I'll, I'll give a few examples. So one is the gut microbiome turns out to be incredibly important for all kinds of aspects for our health. And, you know, certainly, you know, when I was young and when, when I was a kid, we used to all talk about germs, right? You just try to avoid germs and you kill everything off. And that was the paradigm. And that's totally switched now because you have to think about this set of thousands of, my, of microbial species that are living on your skin, in your gut, all around you. So you have this envelope around you that everything that comes into your body, whether it's food, a supplement, a drug, any of those things, they first pass through the microbiome. Uh, Parts of them are modified before they get into you. And that was totally invisible before. So now you can get access to that kind of information uh, directly. Uh, Even the company where I'm chief science officer, uh, Thorne Health Tech, for example, uh, we have a gut microbiome test. Anyone can take it and you can get uh, information that relates to, you know, how well you're digesting food. Uh, Are you making your stomach too basic uh, when it needs to be more acidic? Are you making uh, the kinds of um, neurotransmitters or or elements in your gut that you want to see for brain health? Uh, A number of vitamins and nutrients that you make in your body are actually made in your gut. You can see, is that actually happening? Maybe you're on a probiotic 
that is, uh, you know, where you're trying to up, you know, something in your, your body, you can see if that's in fact happening and on and on. And one of the big advances that we've made recently is making it easier for people to be able to get that kind of information. And so this was, uh, this was done through the development of something that we call uh, the microbiome wipe. So I don't know if any of your listeners have actually measured their microbiome. Uh, your listeners maybe have. They're probably more into. A few uh, probably have. I, I've oh. tried a number of things, but we'll keep going. Yeah. Some have, some have, some have it. Yeah, I'm in different rooms. In a few rooms I'm in, everyone's done it. In most rooms, no one has done it. <laughs> but if you do it the, the general way today, it goes through a step that is sort of an unpopular step. But basically, here, what do you have to do? You have to get a bucket or a piece of paper. Usually, you know, it, it comes in the kit. You have to poop on the bucket or the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to take a little shovel. You got to scoop it up. You got to put it in a vial. Some of the tests actually require freezing. Uh, I don't know what you keep in your fridge, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think most Typically of us, not that. Yeah. Most of us, it's food. It's so, yeah. <laughs> no, not usually this. So we actually got together and thought like, what would be the easiest way for someone to get access to, uh, to this kind of sample where they could get this kind of data. And so we came up with this idea called the microbiome wipe, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's basically special toilet paper. It's made out of a, a polymer. And what you can do is then you just wipe like you do every day. You can then drop that into a vial and close it. And then if you shake it for about 10 seconds, it will dissolve away. Uh, you push another button, it releases a salt solution. It preserves the DNA. Uh, we showed that we could get just as high quality DNA off of this as in the old approach by, uh, we published that in uh, peer-reviewed literature in Frontiers in Immunology last year. And so when we, so we put that together and we think this now makes it as easy to get access to your microbiome data as it is to, to use toilet paper. And yeah. so, so that's a lot what we're really thinking about is how do we make this super easy for people and then make, and then give you a lot of information. And one anecdote that was interesting, um, Sarah Gottfried, uh, who's a well-known physician, uh, I think four-time number one New York Times bestselling author and all, all uh, uh, a friend and uh, just an uh, amazing uh, person and doctor as well. Uh, but she was on you know a podcast and she shared this anecdote because she's been working with um, an NBA team, and it turned out that the NBA team wouldn't do the old approach of the microbiome, but they would do the wipe. And so it was, she was actually able to get you know that in motion and and anyway she shared that as well. So. So all of that, and I know that was a long start, but just there's a lot of, uh, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, but there's many, many things you can do right now to get access to data that would have been impossible just a few years ago. Nathan, this is so fascinating. And and you mentioned three, you said genome, blood, gut. So I think I'm going to have to cover all three and then we'll get into the future. We'll kind of say present and future, right. but I have to stick on the gut for a little bit for a number of reasons. Right. Number one, everybody's heard of it by now to your point. Thank you for saying diet and exercise and things are table stakes. We're, we're not really here to discuss that at the moment. But more importantly, I've done a lot of these tests. I've done stool samples. I've done food sensitivity tests. I've done blood. I've done all this stuff. The problem I found is I get a lot of this information, but then it's, it's all consuming and it's also not very clear. And then finding people to decipher it properly is also difficult. So you really don't know where to turn almost. So how can we start to 
utilize this information. If I'm listening and I'm like, you know, I really, I want to get my gut in shape and I, and I want to check this out and I'll do the wipes. How do we leverage that information in a way that we can trust? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it's probably the central question in the wellness space because there are a wide range of companies and actors and different levels of quality that are in this. And I'll just share an anecdote. So I come out of a hardcore science background uh, and really got professor for many years and, you know, got into this uh, space. But as I got interested in scientific wellness, you started to interface with these other larger groups in, in wellness, some of whom are fabulous and amazing. And I, I really love a lot of people in that, that space, but you also meet kind of a, a range. And I'll, so one of the first meetings I went to, I give a talk, goes through mountains of data that we've gone through on the microbiome and you know, typical kind of thing I would do in, in science. And someone comes up to me after the talk and they say, uh, and they're kind of excited and they say, you know, our company has the greatest probiotics in the world. And I'm intrigued. What does this mean? Okay. And so I, I'm like, well, what makes them so great? You know, why, why are these the best probiotics in the world? And he says something back to me along the lines of, well, we brew them for two years until they're just right. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I'm like, well, these bacteria, they tend to, you know, they have a doubling time typically every you know, half hour to a few hours, depending on the species. And, um, and I say, you know, so what's so special over those long two years? I said, so what happens when you measure a microbiome and you take these probiotics and you measure the microbiome after? And there's no response to that and kind of leaves. So I look up the company online later, and I don't remember the name of the company, but I look up the company online later, and in the advertising and so forth, what they do is they grow these microbes in these big vats, and during that time, they play Mozart to the bacteria. And, and I'm like, oh, oh, there is for real, like, nonsense in the wellness world that we'll, we'll put out there, which coming from you know, kind of a hardcore science community where... That's the vast majority of everyone you you interface with was pretty shocking. So, so I do want to just put that out there. Like there are these these big differences. So if if you're coming in as a consumer, it can it can be challenging to figure out like who do I trust and who don't I trust. So to the extent it's visible to you, definitely look at the scientists who are behind a particular product. And there are ways to look and see you know, if those individuals are, are credible and good. So if you can find out, you know, who's the chief science officer for this company, uh, if you can, if you go to something like Google Scholar, which may not be familiar to all the viewers, but if you're accessing scientific, put that person's name into there. There should be a bunch of publications of real scientific uh, discoveries that have been peer reviewed that are hard to get. Um, harder things to understand are, I know there's a whole hierarchy of, you know, how, of places to publish. And some of them are incredibly difficult, um, like the nature journals and so forth. And some of them are nothing to publish and you just give them money and they will, they will, they'll post it up for you. And so, so that gets complicated, but trying to get that. And then one of the other things that is to look for, uh, for brands that have stood the test of time and that have uh, a sterling reputation amongst people who actually 
used the have used their products or have used their tests or and so forth because the, there's so much in this space that is just you know marketing and then some outsourcing not a lot of testing it, it it's really it's really is a bit of the wild west out there and it is one of the things that we're really trying to do at thorn um and you know there are a number of other companies that i would put into you know kind of you know, good integrity companies, you know, I don't want to be too self-serving on this. Basically, you do want to find something where, where you can have a belief and, and someone that you might be willing to interface with over time. I think that's going to be where this field has to go because otherwise it, it is, it is so much work and confusing to find that out. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now, I use Rocket Money, and it does all of that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month's, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. That's rocketmoney.com smart. One last time, rocketmoney.com slash smart another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app find a location near you at bank of slash talk to us what would you like the power to do Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. I think a lot of people are feeling that. Let's make it a little actionable. Let's say I were to do a microbiome test, right? And and correct me if I'm wrong, but basically that kind of shows what's the state of it. What bacteria do you have in there and what good things, what bad things? Let's say you were to get that result. And aside from maybe some some very obvious oh my gosh, we have to treat that. But you notice some things. What might someone do with those results that would lead to better health and wellness in general? Yeah. So there, there's a number of, of things that you can look at you know, as you get into, uh, into gut health. So one basic one might be looking at digestion. So you can look at, so the way that we do gut microbiome is using uh, what's called metagenomics. So this means you're sequencing all of the DNA uh, in these microbes. So you can look at the different enzymes that are present in that gut microbiome, and you can make predictions about the kinds of metabolic transformations that they're doing. 
So for example, you can look at uh, how, how much it appears that your microbiome might be making ammonia. So you don't want your microbiome making a bunch of ammonia because ammonia is, is basic. Maybe, maybe everyone remembers that from high school chemistry. You need a thing. That's one of that. Uh, but so so it's so you're going to hurt the acidity of your stomach, which will hurt your ability to digest, and that could be happening because of bacteria in your gut that are that are making too much of that. So that's something you can address. Uh, another example would be looking at the breakdown of protein. So how, you know, so your microbiome actually aids in some cases in the degradation of some of these uh, proteins into a different amino acid. You can look at and get a sense if you've got the right kind of gene content in there that would, that would mean that you, you've got a healthy uh, gut in that way. Uh, another example, and uh, I'll use this um, from the supplement space. So uh, a supplement, uh, phosphatidylcholine, uh, which has positive benefits for liver and for the brain. And, but if you have one of about, I think, I think the number, I, at least the number I know is around 20 different species or so, but if you have any of these known species in your microbiome, it will actually eat phosphatidylcholine and it will turn it into trimethylamine. Now trimethylamine will get into your bloodstream and your liver will turn trimethylamine into TMAO. Well, TMAO is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So and this is something that you can monitor. So basically, and it also relates to things like uh, eating red meat because L-carnitine, for example, in red meat and other sources, but red meat's a big one. Um, that also will get metabolized to TMAA, uh, to TMA, which your liver turns into TMAO. And, and so when you go through these things, you can actually get a titration of that. But that production of TMAO is 100% dependent on these on these certain bacteria. If the bacteria aren't there, then you won't get TMA and it never becomes TMAO in your body and you don't have it. So there's many, many different things that you can find out where you might be aiming to have a positive impact in your health, but you in fact are having something else. Drugs, by the way, are the same thing. So this wasn't my study. This was someone else's. Um, but in uh, they published in Cell about two years ago, a really beautiful paper, and it showed the metabolism of a, of a whole bunch of drugs given a person's microbiome. And the evidence sh showed, this is the first, uh, the first estimate, that 13% of drugs are metabolized away by your microbiome and it's different for different people but depending on the mic so you might be on a prescription and you're not even taking the drug that you think you're taking because your microbiome is eating it it's turning it into something else or it's metabolizing it away you're not getting efficacy or worse it could be a driver for side effects uh, I'll, I'll share an example from my own work uh, that we did with uh, sean gibbons at the institute for systems biology uh, and, um, you know, part of the, the lab where uh, that was my full-time gig before I moved to Thorne. And when we looked into that, uh, we were looking in this case at the use of statins. We published this in Med, which is the flagship um, uh, journal for medicine from Cell Press. And what we found was that there are certain groupings in the microbiome, and they will predict if statins will be really efficacious for you.
So there's a certain type of microbiome that if you have, it's very rich in bacteroides. And if you have that type of microbiome, a statin will have double the effect of lowering LDL cholesterol, right, which millions of people are on this, than if you have one of the other microbiome types. By, and at the same time, one of the downsides of statins is that there's about a, there's a 9% increase in the incidence of diabetes when people are on statins. So we monitored the um, biomarkers associated with diagnosis of diabetes. And it turned out again that there's a certain, there's two, in this case, two different groups, two different types of microbiomes that are much more likely to have someone transition to have these higher diabetes markers pop in than if you don't. So this was a study that showed, and in this case, we actually compared it to all the known genetic markers. The microbiome is much more predictive than any of the genetic markers, which is why this paper got, got published out there in the, uh, in the literature in a good in a place it's hard to get into. And so, you know, and so those are the kind of things that, that you find out when you, when you start delving into to this, and you could just go into so much detail around these, these areas. I'm starting to see how the future can be so much better, particularly because if we leverage AI, we leverage learning and all of these things to, to utilize this information, that is really when this takes off. Because I think we're still, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but when I've tried still at this point where we can gather all this data, but because it's piecemeal, and it, it's just really tough to execute on. So tell me, do you think right now we are at a place where you can leverage this information really well? Or do you think we are a ways off? And what is that going to look like? Yeah. So, so my view on that is I think there's enough that you get a lot of value now. It's way farther than it was, say, five years ago when we really were at the infancy. And you kind of had to squint and try to figure out things to say that would be, would be the most interesting. Uh, I think we're well beyond that path, that point now. I think there's a lot that you can say, but the future is so much brighter, right? AI is an incredible technology. Uh, you know, I just, uh, Lee and I just wrote this piece for the Wall Street Journal this month on, you know, AI and the future of healthcare. So it's something we've been thinking about a lot. And one of the chapters in the book is is about this. Uh, and even, even discoveries, over the last month are, some of them are mind-blowingly better than what we had three months ago, right? Which is mind-blowingly better than what we had last year. And and a lot of those we're very familiar with. But if you look at something like uh, the large language models, right? ChatGPT being uh, by, you know, the most famous. You look at those and, you know, and I'm all over this right now. It's um, the degree to which we can generate personalized insight and personalized content to an individual that's informed by a massive back end of information of what's actionable, what's in the literature, what do we know, what do we not know, and the ability for people to interface like back and forth and ask questions and dive in and, and have all this context delivered. I mean, we're at the infancy of that. I look at the way that we do deployment now compared to how we'll do it in a year, two years, three years, five years. And it just gets me so excited because I, you know, there's all the caveats and there's the accuracy, you know, all of which I think are ultimately, uh, uh, I think ultimately we'll be able to deal with them all. But it is, 
you know, we, we had started this uh, company Aravel in the past, you know, and I was chatting with the, you know, some of the people that, um, you know, that we did that with, and we were, we were commenting about just how unimaginably better personalization is than when we were trying to do this. You know, at, in, in, and even, in, even today in, it is today, today it's so much better. And, yeah. and you, you start adding these new technologies and the, and the degree to which you're going to be able to dive in and leverage this vast amount of information, it's really going to be incredible, no doubt. Do you think we currently have the practitioners that are that are able to leverage this information? Some we do. You know, some I think can. Well, to a degree. So let me caveat that first. Nobody can leverage all the information without a deep computational interface. So we're going to get to genomics a little bit later, but just quickly, all right, 3 billion base pairs. There's all kinds of SNPs in there that matter. Their combinations matter. The combinatorics of you start taking the blood measures, the genomics, the microbiome, it's vast, right? It's, it's massive. No one could ever get their mind wrapped around. It's impossible. But with the tools being fed in where you can then look at how these things are related and how they manifest. And we'll all talk about a lot in genomics when we get to there. So that becomes something that we have to deliver. So, so my big thing is that we have to deal with the complexity through computational approaches and AI, but we have to make it understandable. It's got to be clear box, not black box. And it has to be able to reduce to simple, actionable, Insight. So just like something like ChatGPT is, you know, comes from something that's predict predict the next word. In wellness, it'll be what's the next most important thing I should do for my health, and then you do it. What's the next? What's the next? What's the next? And then making that as accurate and useful as possible. You know, that's that'll be the name of the game. Is there anything like that currently that exists that we could do? And maybe it's a practitioner. Maybe it's recommended tests. On your point, that we could do. And then we'll be given essentially, hey, here are your top five priorities. Yeah. So I think I think we have certain versions of that. So certainly at Thorne, we have you know the microbiome test. Uh, we have a, a, a biological age test. Or, uh, there's a number of other tests that, that we do and a number in development that seek to answer that to some degree within a, a particular domain, right? What should I take and why? What's the next step? Those kind of things. So, so that definitely exists to, uh, to a degree. You can also then look at in the healthcare space, and there are people that are pushing this out. One group I like a lot is called Wild Health. Uh, Wild Health has uh, a practice. They dive into a lot of the same quadrants of data that I've mentioned, uh, but you can do it with your health you know, with a healthcare practitioner, and they've got a really good network of uh, being able to, you know, dive in with you and work with you on a personal basis. And they run a, a, a you know a telehealth system as well, so people can sign up there. So you know that's a good one. Uh, there's a lot of what are called functional medicine doctors, and um, and some of them are are really fantastic. Uh, Sarah Godfrey, who I mentioned, is you know is one of them. Uh, but they have a uh, so especially if, if if you get someone that's like an MD trained and then also is sort of willing to dive in on these these personalized uh, elements. Uh, some of them will really dive in with you. They'll work with you on lifestyle and, you know, and diet and exercise and, and supplements and, um, 
for the ones that are accredited to do so drugs when they're when they make sense and but you can really get into these things in in a deep way so i so there there are elements that are around where that you can get you know meaningful full help uh, there's also a whole range of individuals uh, that have jobs now as health coaches uh we used to, uh, uh and uh these have uh, I think really important roles as well that can serve as a liaison and, and some of them really specialize in trying to be a bridge between some of this uh, more advanced information that's coming around. Uh, we hired 50 of them on, you know, in my uh, first company in, in Aravel, uh, who were just amazing. And they've now gone out and populated the world in all kinds of other places where they, you know, got, uh, an early exposure to a lot of this deep data uh, when they were there. That's amazing. And I'll tell you one of the reasons I wanted to ask. We were talking about the genome and we can go into genomics a little bit about goodness. Six years ago, maybe I did. I want to say it's 23 in me, I believe. And there's an option to get your raw data. So I downloaded it and I got, I don't know, like a CVV and I put it into multiple models. Uh, one was called genetic genie or yeah. something like that. Yep. Yep. That was um, a one. Okay. And there was another one I can't remember. And it gave me like mutations, something to do with MTHFR or something. I don't remember. All I remember is being so excited and then getting the results and, and kind of being like, I still don't know what to do with this. But that was a while ago. Yeah. So, and, and you might not know the answer to this, just throwing it out there. Let's say somebody listening is just fascinated by this. Do you have recommendations on what they could do with their genome to, again, we're going more for wellness, I think a little less on the side of disease right. uh, fixing or, or cures, but wellness aspect. Yeah. So I still, this is an area that I think is, it's so interesting. I think it's really nice to see. And I still think we've got just a little ways to go to make it hyper actionable, but I'm going to explain uh, why. So the genetics, so partly the genetics is, I think, very informative. I mean, I love having my genetics. It definitely tells you, here are the things that you should be most worried about, right? What are you at highest risk for? Yes. Right? And, and they do that in the test, right? That like I remember that. Yes. Okay. Yep. So you have APOE4. For example, you have one I have one copy of APOE4, so I'm like, okay, I have an elevated risk for Alzheimer's. All right, I'm going to want to watch that. Hence, we've spent years building a detailed digital twin of the brain for monitoring Alzheimer's. We'll talk about that. Later. I know you guys have done a lot there, and now <laughs> I see why. Okay, so really, you're just trying to live forever. Pretty, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so you know, so you you might you might look at that, or or is Parkinson's your issue? I have super high genetic risk for macular degeneration, so great lifestyle during my life, but my genetics say that won't last forever. So, okay, what can I do? So that can prompt you to like, to go into areas to say, all right, I, I'm going to learn a little more about that space, or I'm going to make some choices that are different uh, to see if I can have an impact. Okay. But if all you, so, but the genetics alone is somewhat interesting. But what I am a huge believer in is taking the genetics with the blood measures and putting them together. And I'm going to explain why. So we did a study on this. We took thousands of people through this wellness program. And we were looking to see changes in different biomarkers associated with health. So 
let's so the first of those let's take LDL cholesterol. So LDL cholesterol, right, used to diagnose statins, very common. Probably almost all your listeners have had their LDL cholesterol measure, annual physical, all this stuff. So we looked and said, who was able to lower their LDL cholesterol while going through a lifestyle, diet, supplement, you know, a, a wellness program? Who'd... And when you look at the raw data, what you find is that it's kind of a mixed bag. Some people can do it. Some people don't. And on average, you have this modest effect. But now you go in there and you say, all right, what, but in our study where we had genomes and proteomes and metabolomes and microbiomes and clinical labs and you know all the things that we were doing. So now you have the first big window at the big data window into a wellness study. You know, this is the big one that Lee and I led at uh, Institute for Systems Biology. So when we, uh, and using the data from, from Arabelle. And so when we did that, what we found was that um, it turned out you could predict who would lower LDL cholesterol and who wouldn't from the genome. Um, so what it so what it means is that if all we have is your genetics, we can predict a to a degree the LDL cholesterol that would be typical in your blood, and um, and what it what we showed was that if if you take two people that are at the same elevated LDL cholesterol, but if one of them, their genome predicts that their LDL would be low and the other, it predicts it will be high, their ability to change is different. What matters is the delta. So if your measurement's high and your genome predicts low, you can change it by lifestyle. But if your genome predicts high and you're high, then you can't. And I'm saying in a simple way there, of course, sure, spread, of course, individuality and so forth. But on average, that is true. And so the bottom, you know, and so we have nice figures of this. So for the bottom 40%, you know, where the, you know, where the gaps were the highest, so they were predicted, you know, their, their genome predicted low, they got very statistically significant lowering of LDL cholesterol going through this program, you know, big and significant. And the top 40% where their genome was predicting them high, they got no statistically significant signal that there had been any change in LDL cholesterol. So that's a very big difference. Now, that's the example for LDL cholesterol. And by the way, the signal we used for that paper, which is in 20, uh, 2019, that captured 11% of the variance for the people that are statistically minded. Polygenic scores have gotten much better. Now you can capture over 20% of the variance. So everything that I'm saying is only more true now. It's stronger. And so, um, so we looked at, can you raise HDL cholesterol, the so-called good cholesterol? Well, only the top 20% of individuals where, they, where their genome predicted high, they could. The others, we got no signal. Hemoglobin A1C falls into this, right? A marker for diabetes. It turns out that if you want to understand your hemoglobin A1C score, there are genetics that relate to the residence time of your red blood cells. So if your red blood cells circulate in your body about 120 days, right? If you took some physiology in college or something, you know, maybe you'll remember that number. It's about 120 days, but it's not 120 exactly for every person. Some people are more towards the 110. Some might be more towards the 130. And it turns out that's predictable by genetics. So if... Chris, you had the genetics where your red blood cells circulated for, let's say, 130 days. 
let's say mine circulated for 110, if we got the same hemoglobin A1C score that said we were borderline pre-diabetic, it would be a bigger problem for me than for you because remind people hemoglobin A1C is glycosylation coming in on the protein. So it's an accumulation. But if it's if it's an accumulation for me over 110 days, and it's an accumulation for you over 130 days, those should not be treated the same. That's very different. cool. So, and on and on and on. So, so the point here is that this introduces a completely new class of variables into all of medicine, which by the way, we basically don't use today. You know, we're gonna try to change that. So it's because when we all have our genomes and you use the genome to predict your blood markers, then all of a sudden you have an analysis in your life that says, here's where all your markers are of health. Here's how they deviate from what we would expect given your genome. And everywhere you see a big gap, that's the easiest thing for you to fix. That's where you're likely going to see a benefit if you're taking a supplement for it or you're changing your lifestyle, you're, you're, you're doing whatever you're going to do. Like you should see the biggest benefit in those places. And there are areas that you might not have to hit with, you know, kind of the sledgehammer of, of a drug on it. You can, you can try first to see, can I shift that myself? And then if there are other cases that are causing problems where your genome is really pushing it up, well, that's going to be hard. That's going to be hard to change. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I was just going to say, when people talk about personalized medicine, is that really the core of it? Is that like what we're talking about. Let's leverage the genome, what it's telling us about kind of your natural state, your predisposition state, and then where you are from that. Based on that information, we can decide what's an easy win, what's almost an impossible move, and where we can play. Exactly. So this is, this is, this is exactly what precision medicine, medicine is about, or personalized medicine, except that most of that field is very focused on um, the right drug at the right, you know, to the right patient at the right time. In fact, that's the mantra, right? But it's already a drug. It's already a patient, you know, and, then it, and it is at the right time. So I believe in that. I used to, you know, that was the mantra I was following for many years, but I actually want to see that a little bit different. This, this is the point of, you know, the age of scientific wellness book, because it's not just precision medicine, which tends to still fall under this paradigm of we intervene after there's some serious problem, right? The right drug for you, the right, you know, the right diagnosis, the right patient, the right time. We want to move that all upstream, which is, so that's what we're talking about now, which is, okay, well, what, where's the natural homeostasis of your body? And that's the thing that we haven't, you know, even gotten into yet because, you know, these deltas, one flip side is, Maybe the high LDL cholesterol isn't as bad if you have certain genetics, because if you have different kinetics, if your equilibrium state is different, well, then the measure in your blood could be different for the same, basically what's happening in your tissue, right? There's all these different elements 
that we have to die. And we're just in the baby steps of personalization now. And especially for health. Uh, I was on a, uh, a, uh, a panel uh, just before the pandemic with the uh, emeritus chair of medicine for Harvard Medical School, uh, Danny Asiello. And he he said this in a way that I really like, so I've quoted it uh, tons of times in, in paper with permission. Um, but basically, uh, healthcare is the only industry that does not study its own gold standard, which is wellness. So we basically don't study health in a deep way. And we focused, like even the National Institutes of Health, right, which we organize all of our research around, is subdivided into a whole bunch of institutes that are each about disease. And they do a lot of great work, right? I mean, I've been by them over many years and all that stuff, right? But we haven't thought about a lot of these things from the standpoint of a wellness perspective. You know, how, you know, what does my genome say about my natural homeostatic state? What are the things I can easily change and that I can't easily change? Is my body good at combating oxidative stress? Does it deal well with oxidative? Does it deal well with um, inflammation? Does you know, it, Are my telomeres shortening more than I'd like them to? Can I make a difference to that? Et cetera, et cetera. Just how do we refocus our efforts so that we're thinking about how do we extend our health span? How do we stay healthy for just as long a period as we possibly can instead of come to me when you have a terrible disease and I'll give you this drug, you know, so that that's what we really want to push against. Such fascinating stuff and such an interesting topic. And like you said, that's what the book is about. Let's transition into that a little bit. We're in this age of scientific wellness. The difference being number one, it's not about disease. Number two, it's scientific. We're trying to use measurable information. For those of us that, again, we've heard it, but we don't really know what it means. Paint the picture on what that might look like and how far out are we looking? You know, in terms of how far out, it, it, it's of course a continuum, right? Of, of how of course, far yep. you can get and, and all Give that. us the closer one so we have something to look forward to. <laughs> so you can already start to do some of this in your own life like we just talked about. But what, what we'd really like to see here is one of the big steps, and we've started taking these steps, is that we have to generate a lot of really dense data from people who are well. And because we want to understand what's happening well before you get into a serious disease case. So we did, as I mentioned, the first you know, big multi-thousands of people studies in the wellness space, but there are more that are emerging. Aran Segal out in Israel, for example, has a new cohort of 11,000 people, uh, you know, who we're, we're talking to a little bit right now, but, you know, they've, they're putting this dense phenotype together. We think that by the, the, a big part of the goal here also was to offer people through scientific wellness, like a program such that you're making an impact and you're helping them in their life today. And as a byproduct of that, what you're hoping is that people will be willing to donate their de-identified data uh, for discovery purposes, you know, or allow that to be allow that to be used. Because when that happens, it lets us dive in and decipher all kinds of different things about you know what health means, such that we can then create something that's better to give back to people. And I do think that there's an incredible value to society of us being willing to share uh, de-identified health data in that way, because it is the catalyst 
for what we want to see, which is the setup for basically all chronic disease. There are going to be pre-disease states or there are pro- there are processes that are getting disrupted early. Let's let's take one that's well understood now, pretty well. Let's understood. do it. Uh, di- uh, type 2 diabetes. So type 2 diabetes has horrific endpoints. Like the num- so at the at the extreme and it's so hard to even imagine being in this position, but at the extreme you lose pain sensitivity. So people end up stepping on a nail or some kind of problem, they get infections, they they don't realize. You end up with things like foot amputations. And I, I forget the exact number, but foot amputations are up something like 30 or 40% over the last 10 years. I, I remember looking this up for the book. It was this like gruesome outcome, right? Horrible, horrible. But if you're thinking about early stage, well, we understand that because what's happening are insults to your, your system where you, you're, you're flooding it with too much sugar. You have to then respond with insulin to bring your down you know, and this is like type one diabetics don't have insulin. So that's why they have, you know, this serious problem for life, but type two diabetics, you lose that control over time. And so you, you cease being able to deal with it. But if you're capturing, if you're pre-diabetic and I was actually pre-diabetic some years ago, another thing that motivated me into this. So when, if you're pre-diabetic, the interventions are cut down sugar, walk outside, you know, get some more exercise, you know, all the, all the, all the table stake stuff, right. Do some resistance training, get some cardio, get, you know, you get healthier. So when you're talking about interventions for pre-diabetes, a lot of it is actually pleasant things, you know, eat, eat food that is, you know, delicious, but not filled with sugar. Walk by a beautiful lake, get outside. Like that's a much better place to be than we're going to cut off your foot, which is the end stage of, of, a, of a horrible diabetes trajectory. So if you imagine that then for Alzheimer's, right? And we all know the horrible end of Alzheimer's and, you know, but there are things you can do that will delay the onset of dementia. And those fall into a lot of those, you know, same healthy buckets. And we can get into that in more detail, but you know, there's, there's things of that nature. So you can make a difference, um, you know, there are limits to how, you know, how far you can push these things. But as, but our belief is that as we really dive into this and understand those processes early, the interventions are simpler. The, uh, and so that's what we really want to do is to understand that not just from case control studies at late stage disease, but this process of scientific wellness actually gives you more of a movie throughout the course of life of what's changing, what are all the elements, how do we back out from a lot of these scenarios and push them off as far into the future as possible? And with the huge technological advances we're getting, the further you push it out, the more likely it is that we figure out something amazing to do in the interim. And the more data that we're able to share and and link together to be able to follow those processes, that's what makes it possible. Right. You can't get there without it. It's, it's impossible to do it if you don't do that. Well, and that makes sense. We got to understand what does healthy look like. Let's create kind of some kind of baseline. Where are you at? And then why are you off of those healthy markers? And then what can we do to positively impact or move those healthy markers, essentially? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and what we're really looking for, and this gets slightly wonky, but we'll talk about it, for, is 
you know, because there's a difference between something called a biomarker and something that we call a surrogate endpoint. And so a surrogate endpoint is something that if you change, actually modifies the a process that matters, i.e. it reduces the disease. Like a biomarker can be something that is a, um, it's indicative of the disease, but changing it doesn't eliminate the disease. Okay, and that so, makes sense. And so there's this, yeah, biomarkers, of course, much more common word, but but these, uh, these, so what we'd be looking at with scientific wellness is to start differentiating you know, what is it that you do from the intervention standpoint in these early phases that shifts it into a space where, where you can, in fact, push it off. And one of the really fascinating areas that you can get into here is um, uh, new capabilities around uh, what are called digital twins. So, so digital twins are an area where you are essentially simulating a person's physiology, their unique physiology. So you, you incorporate things into it about their, their genomics and their blood measures and their lifestyle as much as, you know, as much as you can, uh, can do. And, and so we've, we've built one of these out for brain health over the last two and a half years. And what that actually lets us do is simulate the physiology of, of these twins over lifespan. So we can, we can model cognition, you know, throughout all of adult life, uh, predict the age at which we think they'll fall into dementia. And then we can do all kinds of interventions to say, well, what if we started doing this at age 30? How many years do we think we could push it off? You know, if they started doing interventions at age 55, how much could we push it off? What style of intervention? And one of the things we've been finding is quite interesting, and we're going to dive into this in a lot more detail, but you can, you know, you do one of the interventions and you find like it has a, a you know, a small effect. And that's the kind of thing we typically do in a clinical trial, right? We try it, we do one thing and then you look at it and there's reasons that we do it that way, of course, but, and then you do a couple of them, you get a little bit better if you. And then when we say, well, apply all of them, we tend to get this like dramatic leap forward. And so, you know, one of the real questions is, and it's so hard to think about how we would even ask that question in a, in a real population because of the time and expense that would be involved. But by building these really detailed models, you know, based around lots of mechanism, you compare it quantitatively to, to we've done it to over 30 short term, shorter term clinical trials, you build that. But the simulation then lets you ask these questions about, okay, well, what would it matter when we simulate 10 million lifetimes uh, of how these things play out? And you get these beautiful maps of, of which variables, you know, which interventions really make a difference and, and which don't. And you also get this view, right? It needs some validation around it, but I think intuitively it also makes a lot of sense, which is, you know, you do one thing, you get a little benefit, you do it. But if you do enough of them, if you do a bunch of things, and I think in our own lives, we find, I always find this, like you try one thing and it doesn't seem to move. You try another. But as soon as you say, you know, I'm just going to throw the kitchen sink in. I'm just going to, everything that I know has a little effect. I'm just going to do all of it. And usually you have this like amazing benefit, right? It's you, you find that, okay, you've somehow you've hit all the different pieces. 
so that you've solved the systems problem, right? Now you're the associate director at the Institute for Systems Biology and you know, still an on-leave professor there. But anyway, that's what we think about, right? Systems biology. So when you, when you try to understand biology from a systems point of view, you know that it's not enough to hit a particular node. That's why single drugs are, you know, so rarely like the solution to something uh, ultimately. But you have to understand what are all the different components because if you fix one thing, there's something else that's rate limiting. So you have to figure out, okay, what's the combination to where I've actually restored health and how do I get there? And so these technologies are going to just drive that to a whole, whole other level. And I'm, I'm really excited about those two. And they're, they're early stage, but the promise is, is, is really massive. This might be the coolest thing I've heard in terms of where medicine's going. And here's why. Uh, one of my favorite passions is gambling on football. Okay. And one of the things I've realized over the years is I, I kept hearing about all these models that people are building and all that, but essentially they're building the equivalent of what you're talking about to predict the outcome of sports. So if we can put in all the income, right, tr or all the inputs, trends, the position players, what they do, what the coaches do, what the weather's like, all this stuff, and we simulate the game a million times, we're going to get this probably bell curve of outcomes. And then we can bet on the most likely outcome. Yep. We could do that with humans is what you're saying. I've never thought about that. And you're talking about it um, primarily with the brain, but I imagine just the next iteration of that is let's build your entire self in a digital model, leveraging all of the data we have about you, right? So your entire genome or your, your, your parents genome and your gut health and your this and your that. And then let's just, let's feed it bananas for a week and see what happens, right? I mean, that's what essentially you're talking about, which is crazy, but fascinating. Exactly. This is, this is really the triumvirate that I am so excited about right now that I think is, leads to the future of health as we want to see it, which is one, these d streams of dense data or the multiomics as we call it, or, you know, so these, these dense data clouds. So that's one, all that stuff we talked about at the beginning of blood, microbiome, all that stuff. The second big piece is the digital twins, which leverages that. But then when we build out the physio physiological models this way, you can take that information and, for and create a forecast of health over the course of a life, which is an amazing new capability. And it's uh, still expanding. And then you can deliver the insights off of that through these emerging technologies like the large language models that let you interface and ask questions of this highly complex background Jeez. in English or whatever language you speak, right? It doesn't matter, right? It translates into every language, right? So whatever you do, but in plain language, you can interface back and forth with that. Like, so the degree to which we can start thinking about, you know, building a healthcare that's really what we have to have in the 21st century, that's not like our current system, which really is 20th century healthcare kind of like moving forward. But if we want to really adapt to like this new paradigm and what we call the age of scientific wellness, that's what does it. Those, those three things together will give us, and I don't want to be so hyperbolic, but I, I just can't help thinking like it, get, it it's an unimaginably better capability than we, than 10 years ago. I mean, we just, we couldn't have even, conceptualized how fast some of these things would come to be. And so there's a lot of work ahead. 
there's, you know, there's the pieces that people can do now, but you look at that and it's just a totally different chance for us to, you know, remake the, the life situation that we're in, in terms of, you know, how long we can stay healthy, how easily we can capture things before they become huge issues developing monitoring systems like the kind of things we have in our car, right? Where we measure temperature. Right. Oh, good point. Yeah. Hey, right. We do that already for, for cars. Like, you know, we used to wait, they break down, you take them, the automatic. We don't do that anymore, right? You have 10,000 sensors a second that are monitoring all kinds of areas of wellness. We'll be able to do that. And your car is replaceable, right? Your car is replaceable. Your body is. It. Not yet. <laughs> Not replaceable yet. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yet. <laughs> That's It's amazing, right? That's incredible. Well, Nathan, I, I don't want to keep you all day, but before we let you go, a couple of things. One is we started the conversation on what can we do today? And we covered some great ground and feel free. Like you work at Thorne. I was telling you before the the interview, Thorne is a, is a company that I've, I've used a lot of their products over the years. I've had them prescribed by functional medicine doctors. I trust them, you know, so you could leverage their tests and things you're aware of. Where are some places people could start if they're listening? They're like, yeah, I'm interested in, in being healthier or do you have any recommended? Here's the what I think is the best first place or the best first test. Yeah. So so for people that would like to get started there, um, uh, thorn.com has a lot of uh, areas that uh, you can dive into. So we go on a model of test, teach, transform, iterate. So testing, you know, I, I recommend the, uh, the microbiome test. Uh, the biological age test is also a good uh, entry point. Uh, for people who want to do that. There's also bunches of just uh, very simple questionnaires uh, that people can use if they have a particular issue or something they're trying to deal with. Uh, so a whole host of things along along those lines that I think help people get get better. I do think the genomics tests are, are, are uh, very useful. Uh, we don't sell genomics tests at this point at Thorne, uh, but if you go to 23andMe or, or Ancestry or any, any of the other uh, players that have emerged, um, self-decode's got a really nice report on some of these things. You can do, you know, a variety of, uh, of insights around genomics. I think it's, it's worth, uh, knowing what, uh, what your profile looks like. Uh, so you can incorporate that in. And the mo- the biggest thing is just to start being aware of, you know, how you can interface this with the way that you're thinking about your own health, uh, and you know, be if you can find a great practitioner uh, to interface with, I think that's wonderful. And but even if not, I think that there's this whole. And I did write an article for Scientific American about this. You know, that's that, uh, if people want to look that up, that's interesting around this emerging scientific wellness industry. And I think I mentioned fifty companies or something in that article, and it goes through you know kind of all the different classes of the types of testing or interventions and different buckets and different groups that are going through and doing that, uh, which I think is, it's just, it's starting, starting to happen. Yeah. Well, all of this in detail and, and also in a, in a compelling way is in the book and it's, it's brand new. I mean, it's out, uh, this month as we record in April. So the book is the age of scientific wellness, why the future of medicine is personalized, predictive, data rich, and in your hands. Before we let you go, 
where else are you? I know you write a lot of places. Anywhere else people can find you or you'd like to to guide them towards along this subject? Yeah, if they're interested in just getting thoughts from me, uh, the platform I use the most is probably LinkedIn. Um, so, you know, just me on LinkedIn. Uh, we post relatively frequently about these things. I'm also on Twitter um, at IS, it's at ISB uh, Nathan Price uh, on Twitter if, if people are interested uh, there. And yeah, other than that, uh, it's all coming through uh, uh, through uh, Thorn, uh, which uh, Thorn.com. All right, Nathan, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. This week's guest was Nathan Price. It was hosted, as always, by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Nathan's book, The Age of Scientific Wellness, Why the Future of Medicine is Personalized, Predictive, Data-Rich, and In Your Hands, is available wherever books are sold. Let's jump into the quick housekeeping items. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.